Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen, and uh, we have a special guest with us joining us from New Hampshire. Uh, Sharon Ketchum is with us. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Andrew and Stephen. I'm glad to be with you guys tonight. For those of you who, who we're glad to have you too, I, I should say that. Uh, really excited about today's conversation, and I'm going to let you introduce yourself in a moment, but to give a quick one or two liner here. Sharon is uh, a theologian at Gordon College. She's a writer, researcher, teacher, mentor, quite a bit of ministry experience, and seems particularly engaged in a lot of kind of the local church and, and youth ministry um, space, which is really interesting. And I'm excited to dive into some content of her most recent book or upcoming book. I guess it just just came out, it right? Technically, out. Yeah. yeah, in it October. Out, yeah. Congrats. So we're, we're hopefully catching right. the early wave here. We um, sure are. The book is called Reciprocal Church, Becoming a Community Where Faith Flourishes Beyond High School. Sharon, welcome to the podcast again, and please introduce yourself to, to our listeners. Sure. So yeah, my name is Sharon Galgay Ketchum. I like that middle name. It keeps kind of my heritage in there. there Good. Um, I'm a professor at Gordon College, which is a um, Christian liberal arts school up on the North Shore of New England, actually in Massachusetts. Um, I teach theology and ministry courses there. By training, I'm a practical theologian, which is a fancy way of saying I like to engage questions of life and faith and make sure that the conversation between the church, churches and ministries and the formal work of theology is getting um, its attention um, um, for us. Um, I spent a lot of years working in ministry with young people in particular, um, got to ride waves of great um with, um, with great leaders and a great church um, that was really caring for young people in important ways. Um, and it's some of that experience that I'm drawing upon um, and thinking theologically about questions that we're facing right now. Excellent. When, when did you get involved with, with, youth, with uh, youth ministry? Is that sort of your, your first kind of ministry position? Were you in the ministry? Yes, sir. So when I was a junior in high school, I was pretty clearly set that that was a direction that I was going to go. Um, in fact, I felt rather confident that young people were needed for the future of the church. Not really sure I even knew what that meant, but it's been a pretty common thread in my work um, for all these years. So I studied under ministry undergraduate, um, began working in a um, Presbyterian church in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, spent a little under a decade there before doing some further studies. Now, when you were, was this, I'm trying to think back to like youth ministry, would, would this have been in the 90s? This would have been the 90s, yes, and a little beyond. Were you, were you, were you in the throes of like the, uh, like the bring in the big guys with phone books era, or they come and they rip them up and then like, Talk about John 3.16? Well, that might have been going on. That would probably not have been quite my vibe, but oh, okay. alas. It's one of Stephen's it favorites. It comes up on yeah, the podcast so. a lot. YouTube <laughs> videos circulate. Wow. <laughs> that scares me just a little. <laughs> have you seen those? You've seen those guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> like powerlifting for Jesus type stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Real deal. Yes. <laughs> Good deal. Well, uh, Sarah, thanks for having for for coming on the show with us. We're uh, excited to have you. Um, your book, Reciprocal Church. So we wanted to bring you on uh, for a number of reasons. The first was sort of, I guess, out of what why we started the podcast to begin with. We've got a number of friends that we've been in conversation with um, over the years that are in the the nuns and the duns or the spiritual but not religious and everything in between. And uh, we uh, have just become interested in in conversations that that do, uh, I guess, sort of help help foster or, or, or help to build a sustainable faith. Uh, we, we love talking to people who are out there having those conversations, especially folks that are uh, as, as well-read and, and really out there in the research uh, uh, as you are. We're really uh, just grateful to have you on for that. And then secondly, we're parents. So we've got, we've got kids and we, we think a lot about how our parents will answer or how our kids will, uh, will answer the question of what was it like to grow up in a Christian home someday? So uh, we, we hope Hope, hopefully, we you know we're we're creating an environment where a sustainable faith can be, um, can be uh, can be built. There's there's a lot of stuff we can cover in here. 
And I'm wondering, just for the sake of some background, um, could, could you describe the, the, the current state of youth ministry in the U.S.? Can you speak to, you know, maybe a little bit of the history and how we got here? Okay. First of all, just a recognition that youth ministry is a sociological reality, meaning adolescence is a period of time, a life phase, hasn't always existed. So it's not until we have the extension or a delay between childhood and entering adulthood that adolescence existed in society. So you can mark that right around the 1900s, around the turn of the century. So as the need for um, or the development of this group of people called adolescents, this lifespan moment happened, um, churches and lots of youth organizations started in order to focus their attention on this group of people. And throughout the years, um, really what we have been able to do in churches is kind of a specialization that we've been able to focus on uh, an evolving segment of the population and really specialize in ministry to them and among them. Um, And so you could read about that good history by um, someone like my colleague, Mark Canister, or a guy named Mark Center, or Tom Bergler, who really have unpacked that. Um, But as we start looking at their history, I just want to say from the get-go that young people in churches have been cared for for decades by really great adults who love Mm -hmm. them and intend good for them. Um, And there's been a lot of good, sustained faith out of young people that's come out of youth ministry and recognize at the same time that there's another side. You want me to define the nuns, the duns, and the spiritual but not religious? Yeah. That'd be awesome. Sure, let's go for it. The nuns, um, actually, let's do the duns first. Those are the easiest. The duns are those that are simply done with this thing called church. They've tried it out. They worked it out. What was said, they don't believe. They call people the hypocrites, or they're just done with the scene of church. It just didn't play out like they thought they would. Um, the, the nuns are those who, when asked, um, what is your religious preference? Check the box, none. An interesting um, data point is predominantly come from Pew Research. Um, And what we see for uh, the nuns is that increasingly people are willing to check that box. Now, there's a lot of reasons people would check that box, um, whether it be culturally accepted or um, real, like leaving the church or not ever knowing anything of faith. There's a lot of reasons, a lot to be understood about the nuns, but there's an increased number of nuns. And specifically for rising generations, those numbers are higher than they've ever been. Interesting. Um, Spiritual but not religious, I'm spiritual. I like the things of spirituality, but religious things of the institution, no thank you. It's interesting. I hmm. I feel like growing up, I always wanted to be the third one because there was nothing about... But not religious. Yeah, because it, it just seems so... But actually, I was extremely... I'm extremely religious, and it wasn't always in the healthiest ways. And I think something about framing it, it was kind of this, you know, I didn't want to frame myself that way. Um but I, I know I think I was I was pretty blind to the reality I was in. But but before you dive in more to some of this content, I'm just curious for myself: where did this interest of yours personally? Where was it birthed from? Great. Um, I spent many years in ministry, and I feel like I had the benefit of working at a time in youth ministry where we were at the peak. Like we kind of had figured this thing out, what we needed to do. We convinced churches to um, give more resources. You know, we had paid staff. We were publishing like crazy. We had nuanced conversations that were starting around youth ministry. And so we we kind of got the program set and things plugged into space. We, We were doing what needed to be done. And on one hand, great, um, saw a number of students come to faith and remain in faith and still are today people of faith. And then there's this other side with all these other students that came or young people that came through the ministry that did what, what kind of we would put together as a lineup of what people need for faith development. And they walked away from the church. And I had been there long enough and seen enough of it that I wanted to ask more questions about what we're doing. Hmm. In your book, you know, speaking of asking the questions about what we're doing and and trying to 
assess the you know the current state of of a ministry and then decide what actions to take next. You you describe these five common sort of methods of of quote attacking the problems. Um, that's that's my quote, not yours. Uh, can you can you impact those? You had these there these these. Well, I guess the the first four, and then we'll impact the fifth one later. Sure. Um, I'm just. I was just trying to characterize what are the approaches that people are taking in response to this. What is um, this fear kind of driven, and what feels like a crisis of young people leaving the church? That's a, another conversation to talk about how we're generating fear around that. But um, yeah. and then I think that's really healthy. Okay, that was a big aside now. Um, but there's. We might need to hit hit that. that. (laughs) Um, But there's these four characterizations. So we have like the physician, the physician among among us who are trying to figure out really what's how do we identify the illness? What are the key problems and vulnerabilities? And we have the archaeologist, the one that wants to dig around and find out what's really right. What are the hidden artifacts or the key factors that we could find that would support sustaining faith? We have the engineers. Those are the people who, with all the creativity, just want from the ground up, they're going to throw it all out, scratch it, and they're going to build some new model um, for us. And then we have the coach. Work harder, train harder, do what we've been doing, but let's figure out how to do it better. Um, And I I like to think those first two, the physician and the archaeologist, they really are data-driven. So if we can figure out in the research, Hmm. what is like the magic bullet or the key factors which will sustain faith, and then we do that, then we'll get it right. Um, And there's a lot of good that they're doing, and it's important work, and we need to keep doing that. But we need to be careful not just to listen to the data. So in the book, I write a silly Hmm. example, like what if we found out that eating melon on Tuesdays was the thing? Well, we've been around youth ministry long enough to know that we'll like become a melon-producing, consumption-crazy people with training events and books and melon salsa oh, yeah. and things like that. So, so there's an edge to the data-driven piece that I, I think we need to be careful with, even though it has its place. The engineer who wants to recreate from the bottom up, hey, that's great, but they might leave behind the things they're doing well. And the coach has the opposite problem. They just want to keep what we're doing and work hard to try out or without recognizing that we're actually standing in new space and new terrain. Mm. I, I have a question to follow up on that, and it might be a little bit redundant. So, so how do those four, call them profiles or perspectives, how do they interpret the problem? Like, what what do they recognize the issue? Like, in other words, what's driving it? L- let's say they all agree that there's an issue, which is people are leaving or not interested. Um, uh, what is this, the, the different perspective on, on the why? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that, I mean, probably for the physician and archaeologist and engineer, they all probably would have a similar why, that there's something that we are doing um, – that we just don't know about what we're doing. So more information or more of a model could drive that. Um, so I think they're, they're really looking to produce some new knowledge um, that helps turn the gears differently. Whereas, whereas the coach, I think the coach just thinks there needs to be, we need to do better. We just haven't resolved. We haven't put enough resources right. in or enough energy in to carry it out. So they're not really, they're really ignoring the problem where the first three do identify a problem. Hmm. Now, so interesting. after you, you go into these four, you, you propose your, your favorite sort of approach to the problem, uh, which you, you describe as theological inquiry. And I'm interested in how, how would you explain the, the difference, um, I guess, in, in, in practice, and then also sort of in, in, in like, why you feel like theological uh, inquiry is is a, a better framework for trying to understand uh, youth ministry. Well, let's go back to my um, melon consumption example. So, so we find what if we find in the data that eating melon on Tuesdays will help sustain faith? What does melon consumption have to do with the faith? Um, you know, and I could turn that another way and make it more positive. What if, you know, that not so silly, what if we find out that, um, having a mentor is among the, is a characteristic among those who have sustained faith. 
well, that's, yeah. that's important. And somehow that played out. What does it have to do with the faith? Like what is part of the Christian story related to being a mentor? It's not, uh, they're, they're really important pieces, but they need to come alongside just theologically. How do we, how are we thinking about what we're doing? And in the end for me, what rose to the surface and why I thought we needed to have theological inquiry was the fact that there was a real question about what's the relationship between the person and the church. And how do we, that, that rose out of all this research. So, you know, maybe it is that we're telling a gospel that doesn't include the church. Or maybe we're teaching, treating the church as um, something that can be discarded once people get Jesus. So theological mm. inquiry by that, I mean, how do we make the theological questions among us the primary questions? Can you unpack those two things that you even just said? So Jesus, I want to make sure I understood. Uh, what do you mean by the, those two examples that you just gave, including you know, once we get Jesus, we no longer need the church? Can you expound on that? Well, sure. Um, I wonder what the what the gospel is like that you all grew up on. I know what I said in my ministries about the gospel. So this is in no way am I like pointing the finger. At, sure. I mean, I, I think I'm speaking like the common what, what we're doing in youth ministries for all these years um, is the, did the gospel go something like this, that Jesus Christ died for your sins in order to have a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. Your goal is to accept that gracious love into your life so that you might be transformed. Right. Is that the story? Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I yeah. had different probably mechanisms, but absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's a core story. Right. So where's the church? And if the church's role is only to communicate that, once you have that, why do you hmm. need to stay? Huh. That's so that's interesting. A, that's a good point. So, but we don't. That's a theological question. What's the role between the person and the church? What's the role between people within the community of faith? Are you simply um, a tool for my personal spiritual development, or is there something more? Can you can you speak a little bit in, in the book? You you describe two common ways of of thinking about the relationship between, like the 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 youth, the, the individual person, and the church. And one of them is the supportive, and the other one is the vital. Can you can you explain those two and sort of the compare and contrast? Sure. The ministries that I have um, been involved in over the years are primarily what I would call supportive. They understand. Um, the relationship between the person and the church as the church's role is to support an individual's faith. Um, so we develop programs for per, that meet personal needs. Um, we um, orient even how we think about mission um, as well, how a person might be satisfied by that um, for their own personal growth. So if that's the role of the church, um, how is it that I might understand my relationship with you? In mm. the end, um, my relationship with you is that you might support my faith and I might support your faith. So there should be like a big mm. like danger flag maybe from some people in what I'm saying. Like, isn't personal faith important? Yes. Personal transformation and a personal gospel are absolutely important. So when I talk about the difference between supportive and vital, I want to talk about an expanded view of the gospel and an expanded view of faith, Um, that the Christian community is vital or the church is vital for me and for you um, because God isn't just forming my faith, but God is forming a people. I think somehow along the line, we've lost an understanding of our shared identity what does it mean to be Christian? It means to be, it actually can never come in the singular. Christian can never be singular. To be a Christian is to join with another community, of, with others among you that share that same faith. That's what I mean by vital. How do you see the, the dominant kind of cultural values uh, of our society affecting the, like, whether or not the church is, whether or not we have sort of a supportive view of the church or a vital view of the church. 
Yeah. So uh, can I give a little disclaimer on this? Um, so I'm a little leery of like all culture is bad and negative. Um, and so I'm going right. to give three negatives of culture, but I don't want that to under, I, I mean, I actually just mean them as factual, not negative. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, like these are part of our cultural nuance versus where the big bad culture is made the church. But church is always swimming in a cultural environment. And it's our job yeah. to negotiate how that how the culture around us is either adding to or enhancing the Christian faith. And what are the ways in which we need to reflect upon um, the ways that it might be damaging? And the, so the three that I'm going to give, I think, um, have kind of formed the perfect storm um, of of this um, person centered gospel um, to the place of where we are now. So I'll I'll do this briefly. Number one, we live at a time where community is voluntary. It used to be that community. Um, was a given in our lives. I live in this really quaint New Hampshire town, and I can walk down to the town green and the town hall with the white clapperboard church. Um, it kind of gives you a picture of another day. Um, but today, when I go to church, I get in my car and I drive by a number of churches before I get to my to the one I go to. Community is voluntary. Mm-hmm. We pick and choose. Yes. There's a lot of reasons that is, but we pick and choose the communities that we belong to. So unpack that a little bit. What does that mean? That means I can choose um, to find a preacher online that I like to listen to. Uh, words like church hop and church shop now exist. Um, I join a small group based on what? Based on my needs. Mm-hmm. Because community is voluntary. And then what happens when my needs aren't being met? I leave. Go somewhere else. Go somewhere else. Again, I'm not pointing outward. I'm, this is us. This is us. Um, another yeah. piece to think about is that religion is in the climate that we live is a product. It used to be that religion could have um, a lot of influence over different sectors of society, but the more complex a society becomes and the more sectors that exist in a society, the more each sex- sector has to prove or demonstrate that they have a product on the market. So religion then, Instead of being influential across society, religion is reduced to having a product. And what's the product? The spiritual. Mm. So if you think of the difference between a grand cathedral in Europe and a store um, in a church renting space and a shopping mall to gain influence, it's a big difference. Mm. Third one, consuming is a condition. We talk about um, consumption a lot. used to be that... um, we would speak of Americans as citizens. Now we speak of them as consumers. But when I say consuming is a condition, I'm drawing on the work of someone named Vincent Miller, where we actually it, it actually develops the framework through which we see, understand, and interpret the world. That I consuming is a condition such that I anticipate that my job is to consume, which means when I arrive at church. I'm Mm. understanding the Christian faith through the lens of consumption and even God. How does it meet my needs? Yikes. Wow. Down. Wow. Sharon, that was awesome. Oh, it's so down. So just in the end, what does that mean? If you hear a sermon on the church or um, open up a textbook about the church, you often read that there's two misconceptions. The church is not a building, right? The church is not a building. The church is the people, people, the, the church people. is the people. The church is not an institution to which we are loyal. Our loyalty is only to Jesus Christ. So we hear those two misconceptions. I think there's a third that in the time and space we live has, um, has become our misconception of the church. The church is not a service provider and I'm not talking mm. about worship services. I'm talking about being part of a service industry for consumers where community is voluntary and churches produce the product called the spiritual for us. Ah, uh, that's church. Yeah. Yes. Do you read Peter Perfect Rollins? Work. I'm sorry. I have to ask. Are you familiar no, with Peter I Rollins? I don't. I don't. And he's like, I have books of Peter and I have not read them, Do, but uh, I heard you talk about Peter. Andrew. You guys, like you Peter. guys would, you guys would get We'd along. Be friends. It's just, this yeah. is his thing. It's the, it's the vending. It's just the vending machine of, of products. Um, anyway, Stephen, go ahead. Yeah. And how does that, well, how does like that, that come alongside and, do something with this individual gospel. 
I mean, there's a reason that we started to talk about individual gospel. It's because that was lost right. and turned right. to become ritualistic, right? Right. So now, like, uh-huh. the deep value, which came out of the evangelical tradition to, to talk about personal encounter, or personal transformation, put it in this society. Right. I think the, it's magnified. But the other thing is with the with the the product service and sort of consumers is the very nature uh, or kind of the essence of a product is, is it's useful for a time and then you move on. So, right. so when yeah, we talk yes, about, yes. when we talk about youth ministry or when we talk about young people um, and to your point, I got Jesus and I'm moving on. Um, why do I need the church? It's like, I, I got the product service, good relationship, small, whatever belonging that I needed for a time, that time context and place has shifted. And now I just have no need. And so I throw the wrapper out and I'm, uh, I'm out. Disillusioned. Yeah. Man, I mean, the problem though, is that if you have a product people want, it's going to sell. So totally, you know, if, if you're, if you're in a if you're in a, uh, a a hipster town and people are really really digging like the new age sort of somewhat liturgical but not too liturgical still kind of cool but formal but you know and and, and like bearded worship leaders and, and so cool you're, music you're talking about and, both and, of our churches here so be careful totally man I love my church absolutely oh yeah 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 exactly. So, you know, but like if, if, if that product is selling and it's bringing more people in, then of course, well, now you've got more money. You can, you can, you get more giving, you can get a bouncy house for the spring festival for the kids. And then you get more people to come out. But then, then the struggle is as soon as the, as soon as the wind changes. Yes. Like as soon as the market when doesn't melon want, is out of style. Yep. Yeah. They don't want the bouncy house. They want laser tag. They want this. So then, then you're like, you got to do something else. That's exhausting. Well, that's a lot. I mean, the way you're describing that is loss of mission, loss of understanding what the purpose of the church is. But I want to be careful, too, because churches have to live in contexts, and we have to communicate in the context. So I'm not saying, like, churches are bad and evil, and they've— malformed the gospel, you know, in order to make sure that they can keep their machines going. I'm really not saying that. Um, I mean, I think they're doing their best in order to communicate the gospel in this space. That's why at this moment, when we're reflecting on the nuns, the duns, and the spiritual and religious, we need to do theological inquiry to hold up the mirror and do some reflection on and ask the question, what is the church and what is the relationship between a person and the church? It's our pause to take. So it's not even pointing fingers outside at culture. That just helps us understand why we're here. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. saying, why? What is the purpose of this and what we're doing? So I, 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 maybe we can make, make, make a shift here. This seems like a good time to, to, to make a, a slight turn. Um, you mentioned earlier the difference between the support of you, which is basically like, the church's job is to just pump out spiritual product um, that people will get, and then each and then each individual is a consumer. The difference between that and the vital view is that the church, when 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 you when we show up, the church we're there for each other. So it, it's it's the it's the people and the relationships, and when we are there uh, to see Christ sort of, sort of uh, born out of out of our own relationships together. Um, and, and you, and you use, um, what's the word you use? Uh, shared, shared identity. Yes. And, 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 and all sort of in the context of trying to build mutuality. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Let me do a little work with that one. So just three concepts, um, of, of kind of what's a construction that I'm bringing to this. How do I, how do I define the relationship um, among us, between the church and the Christian. Um, so first of all, it's this idea of a shared identity, um, that their scripture is filled with family language, brothers and sisters. Um, we are adopted into God's family. We read all through the new Testament, these communal metaphors, a body, a nation, a household, a building, um, that we are 
I mean, even some of those metaphors are drawing on Old Testament metaphors to bring them forward and reinterpret them in, in light of the Christ event. The idea that I enter into a silo relationship with Jesus Christ is simply not what we read in the scriptures. We read about our mm. shared identity, our common identity. So I feel pretty strong when I say there is no such thing as a singular Christian. To be a Christian is to be an ecclesial person, is to join others um, in that faith as well. So we have a shared identity. Um, and second, we have this relationship between you and me in the faith that has a vital purpose. Um, not just that we would be able to slap our arms around each other and feel good um, with one another um, and sing kumbaya. We have a new version of that, I hear. There's like a kind of a cool hipster kumbaya <laughs> version out there. Um, yeah, man, I'm sure there is. But there's real purpose. What is the purpose? That we would be a reconciled people. So that our relationship with one another, God intends for something to happen there that we would be transformed. So the communal metaphors being a body is taken pretty seriously of figuring out how to live as a body. Um, mm. That this me and Jesus gospel is actually needs to expand to be a people of God gospel. Um, and the importance of our relationship and the transforming relationship between us. <clears throat> There's a, a third piece too, but just briefly. And how is it that we're transformed? We're transformed in relationship with the hitting of our heads against each other, with our differing wills hitting up against one another. That's where the spirit works to transform. I'd like it to be just me in my quiet time. <laughs> but I think it happens when I hit up against you and we um, have differing wills that there's opportunity for the spirit to produce patience and long suffering. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned in your book that we often will sort of short circuit that, that transforming work that you're talking about as we're sort of hitting against each other because we recognize, oh, wait, then, you know, there's a space. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a generational gap. Maybe it's a socioeconomic or a racial gap. And, uh, but rather than leaning into that space and letting the transformation come out of that, we'll, we'll, we'll instead kind of collapse it and try to just focus on being unified and focus on the things that we have in common. Can you, can you talk about the problems that, that, that we sort of run into or how, how we sort of sell ourselves short when we do that? Right. So I think that it's, we, we would like to think that unity means uniformity so that we get to a point of agreement and that we find what is the same. And that's kind of how we collect in churches. We collect um, with people that are like us, you you mentioned race and ethnic ethnic lines. We the church is deeply divided among those lines, um, and we could do socioeconomic. We we like to be with people that are like us, and we think that mm -hmm. that's an understanding of what unity is. Well, unity is actually in Ephesians four. It's the working out of our gifts, doing the hard work to put them together to carry out the ministries of Jesus Christ. And that in that text is actually describes maturity, not as the person, but as the body who has the capacity to put those together. So, I mean, I don't like conflict either. I'm glad just to try to be with people that are like me, but you know what, even when I'm with people who are like me, all we do is hit up against like our differing wills, right? right? Maybe it's just about more mm. surface things. I don't know. How, how do you see our the roles that we sort of fall into, uh, particularly when we're talking about youth ministry? Um, how do the roles that we fall into keep us from entering into that sort of reciprocal, um, reciprocating relationship? Sure. Um, we have a lot of kind of top-down relationships. Um, that, you know, we've got a mentor that gives to a mentee. We have a parent that gives to a child. We have the youth worker that pours into the kid, um, to the young person. Um, and we, and we even use it in our language when we describe passing on the faith. Our, our job is to pass on the faith to young people. Now I, I do know that that comes out of directly out of Paul's, um, mouth, but when he's using that language of passing on the faith, he's actually trying to focus on the authority from which he speaks versus the action of mm. actually passing on the faith. Huh. That's mm. a good point. I've never thought about that. It's true. Yeah, can you expound on that? 
Uh, Well, sure. I mean, he's just trying to demonstrate that this isn't something that came from myself, and he speaks of the authority for which it came. So the the early church is trying to articulate whose interpretation of the Christ event is accurate, right? So Paul's saying, the authority Mm -hmm. is not mine, so I, 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 I pass on the faith that was passed on to me. But what does passing language do in our day? What, how does that function in our day? Well, it kind of reminds me of going to Starbucks and um, someone passes me the, the cup of coffee that I want um, where I'm in the role, they're the role of the passer and I'm in the role of the receiver. And if I tried to flip those around and I tried to offer the person that was giving me coffee like to make their coffee for them, I, I probably would be politely ushered out of Starbucks. Um, like you're mm. set those roles, someone's the passer and someone's the receiver. So go back to these top-down relationships. Adults are the passers of the faith, and young people are the receivers of the faith. Um, and is that is that true, um, or are mm. they active agents in thinking and wondering and imagining the spirits work in their lives? I think it's the second. Uh, can I can I interject, Stephen? This I know you're on a roll. This might be a off the reservation a little bit. So just a little bit. <clears throat> so we have uh, not quite youth ministry, but so, uh, so in my tradition, I've experienced a lot of my peers, um, including myself at times have been part of churches and, and congregations where there's a lot of language from the older generation around raising up the next generation. Um, and they're not talking about like the sixth graders. They're talking about folks getting out of college and, and or being in college and sort of this next generation of preachers, teachers, missionaries, uh, leaders. And, you know, to put it very lightly with no gory details, there can be a lot of friction there, right? You have a, an older generation that's saying, uh, we really want these people. Where are you? Um, we, you guys need to be leading the church. You guys need to be whatever. Um, and I'll speak from that perspective. And I'll speak from the young youth perspective. Um, in, in my opinion, what I recognize is both a sense of scarcity, like where are these people who were like us, who had the fire we did and the passion we did to do what we did in the way we did it? Um and like, where are these people? And then, but then also at the same time when it looks a little bit different, but there is passion, there is energy and there is a spirit leading that just has a bit of a different form. There's then resistance, right? It's like, oh, I need to, you guys just don't quite get it. Or actually we need to send in a quote unquote supervisor or they wouldn't call it that. They'd say, we need to make sure you're shepherded or whatever. Uh, so there's a tension there, right? And the younger generation's like one, and this is speaking for me. One, I have no interest in doing what you did in the way you did it. Number two, I hear what you're saying, but clearly it's not what you actually believe and are interested in because you're not interested in relinquishing any sort of control. So I'll get off, I'll get off the soapbox. Have you recognized this? What have you, what's your experience kind of been from both perspectives? So I'll do that maybe from defining two different words. Um, What's the difference between participation and contribution? And what are those people really asking? Um, are Do we ask young people, and really anybody, right? Do we ask people who are not involved in the church, do we ask them to participate in the things that we're already doing? Or do we ask them to contribute to the mission of the church? Mm. So that word contribute in it has causation, right? To bring change and to do things. And, and I think we actually need a mix of both, yeah, right? yeah. So there's continuity in what yeah. we're doing and a recognition of really inviting someone into the mission is asking them to contribute to it uniquely. And, uh, you know, in our, our, we talked about fear at the very beginning. I kind of touched on the fear, but we're so scared right now. Parents are scared. You're scared. You're opening thing of your podcast today. You're scared that you might raise absolutely. your kids up and they're going to question everything that like you. I am right? terrified. Yes, yes, absolutely. Steven really is. And I, I couldn't relate. Yeah. <laughs> so, and pastors are scared and churches and adults are scared. And then we like pop all these words, the nuns, the duns and the spiritual, not religious um, and spiritual, well, but not religious. We pop them into their headlines, into their news feeds, and they circulate them with their friends. Look, you know, things are bad. Well, the fear leads us to force up more participation and more mm. control and makes it harder to provide the space 
for there to be contribution. Contribution in a healthy way that joins with what is already going on, understands the mission of a particular church, and yet seeks and have some space to try some things out to see how they might go. Yeah. And, and I'll speak lastly, just from my perspective, I want to just like put this out there. We're also like punk, like people that aren't great listeners. And frankly, think we can do it better than the previous generation. And, and that's not good, right? Like I recognize yeah. the shortcomings. Yeah. I just want to make that very clear. Like I'm not pointing the finger exclusively. And I think that there needs to be a recognition of that, of that generation who, who frankly set, set the foundation, you know, that we grew up in that we're, I'm very grateful for. I, 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 I like this, the, the reciprocal metaphor because there, and maybe, I mean, I'm not an engineer, right? So I, but it Me seems neither. like, I'm not yeah, an engineer. well, good. <laughs> Let's just sound like we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Here okay. we, go. <laughs> so, <Definitely. laughs> we, uh, there's not like a reciprocation. There, there's, there's not like a, a single point on which you can stand. It's not like a lever where you, where you, you, you've got one spot around which you can just move everything in one direction. So inherently there is this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and for a while the momentum is here and then now the momentum is there and now it's over here and now it's over there. And I think that's that, that, that constant shifting of momentum I could see, like, for younger people, I think what, what gets in our way of really connecting with the, with, with the older generation uh, is, is, frankly, that, that we don't genuinely want to be changed by them. Um, mm. I mean, we're, we're frustrated because they don't know how to use their internet browser, or, you know, we, we feel like we get stuck doing things, uh, you know, I, I don't know, little, little petty things, but we don't recognize the 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 deep and profound wisdom that comes with uh, having lived significantly longer. Uh, and, 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 and we also, I think we, we, we fail to kind of recognize, I guess, the, um, their season in life and, and fail, to, fail, to, fail to, to, to see that, you know, it's likely that when I get into, my, the, in, into the last you know, quarter of my life, that my perspective will be very different than it is now as well. Right. Um, and, and it seems like we just, we're more interested like in playing king of the hill than in, in sort of just together, yes. not really knowing where we're going, but being willing to go there together. Yeah. So one of the values I talk about in the book is mutuality, which is kind of a funky word. Um, Mutual, but the mutuality as I defined it, first of all, an understanding that we're better together, right? I mean, your yeah. church is going to be better with older people who have some wisdom and experience in life and younger people and their vitality and crazy passions that need outlets to try things and be part of things, all right? Your church is going to be better for that, so we're better together. But mutuality also stresses this idea of difference, being the opportunity for the power of the spirit to move more broadly than we can move on our own. Um, that there's the give mm. and take, or even that like difference is essential to the give right. and take of faith. Mm. That's helpful. So I, I know we're, we're, we're coming fairly close to time, um, but on the note of mutuality, I do want to ask, how do you, I mean, what, what happens? It seems like, Oh, let me get my words straight here. So <laughs> what happens when you've got opposite sides of a of a just a particularly divisive or uh yeah. controversial issue? Let's say uh you know you've got a younger crowd that is more inclined towards an open and affirming stance on sexuality and you've got an older crowd that is not, but you're in the same church. What does it mean to be in in, in mutuality when when they're there are these sort of just foundational disagreements or moral yes. uh, disagreements. Um, oh, we could put lots of different topics in this. Um, Absolutely. In this category, and what you just outlined are positions that people mm -hmm. hold, and mutuality would emphasize what are our common interests. 
when we start talking about what our interests are, there's the space to have real conversations and being able to create and um, respond differently than we have um, in the past based um, together based on shared interests. How is there room for disagreement? Um, And yet there might be some possibilities of shared interests in order to work together. We could lay out lots of um, issues that we sit around different poles, right? Or mm-hmm. on sides of the spectrum. But really the responses of what we need in our world are the space, all the space in between those two poles. So how do we move mm. ourselves? Mutuality moves us out of positions towards a beginning point of understanding. We're better together. We need to hear from one another. Even in, in our disagreement and our differing wills are the opportunity to find new ways forward. Wow. In your research or in your experience, have you seen any practices? Are there any kind of common um, practices that you that you find in communities that are good at creating those mutual relationships? Yeah. So uh, this is actually like part two of my research that I am rather excited about. Um, part of um, the goal of practical theology is that it just doesn't end because I theologically have some understanding of or new a new way to describe the church or some values that I want to speak about. But now I'm um, looking forward to working with churches and communities that we can have some dialogue about these practices and real Um, I'm sorry about these values and real practices can emerge from that. Um, I have started drafting some, some of them that I'd like um, some churches to try out, but this is the next phase of the, of the project. Um, What are the practices that that come along with um, memory, the value of memory? And so I do a little bit of that in that book, in the book about remembering Mm -hmm. practices of remembering, but they're, they're still, they still sit very much in a theoretical level. So how is it that we think, about mutuality in real experiences on the ground and be able to create a vision next there. That's where I'm going next. I'm kind of excited about it. Can you give us like oh, a little it, bit? Is that like a forthcoming book? Some, yeah. Can you give us a little bit of insight? Well, like what are just, some of these just things? Just one. I'm doing some work um, in Luke and Acts. And as we think through um, the guest host roles, and what does it mean um, as we read through that, that we often see a pivot between guest and host, both hmm. from the person that's playing guest and how Jesus arrives as the ultimate host. Um, we have a lot of fabulous work done in the area of hospitality, um, yeah. and we've done most of that through the practice of, of the host role. Um, and I think we probably live in a time and space where we need to practice being the guest um, and what does that practice look like? That's a mutuality practice. What does that look like in order to make space um, for others such that the the host, the real host, Jesus Christ, might um, be revealed through the Spirit? There's a little taste. Wow. Super fun. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me, you know, we had a conversation with Christine Pohl not too long ago. Have you Are you familiar with her work? I am. Very much. Uh, I, uh, I've really enjoyed her book on hospitality and uh, one of the things that is, that is just consistently stuck with me is the uh, the, the the power uh, in, in in hospitality uh, of of coming in order coming to to receive, but not not in a consumeristic way. It's more like rather than not not that having a you know a big I don't know soup kitchen or feeding people is bad, but but there's an element of like we we can give some, somebody not just food but also dignity when we come and we're willing to like to receive something from them. Um, yeah. That's, that's powerful. Yeah. So, yeah. What does it mean to, to be guest at the celebrations and the funerals of the world around us and not always have to put ourselves in the position of host even? Yeah, that's good. I know, I know we're kind of landing the plane here. I was going to say, you know, for folks that are, you know, in church contexts that are in, you know, that are doing life uh, and are interested in youth ministry, are interested in, raising up, we use this a lot of t- kind of classic language, raising up the next generation and kind of what uh, we've, we've outlined a lot of great stuff here, but what kind of advice do you have for people that are kind of in the trenches now yeah. doing yeah. this, uh, to how, you know, uh, so much of, I feel like the, this church thing is like looking back and going, what did we do wrong? Or how do we begin to build, uh, in a way that's productive and helpful? That's a great question. Um, a couple of things, very concrete. 
read the church's mission statement and ask the question, how will the young people in this church contribute to that mission mission statement? How will they help carry it out versus being um, the receivers of the service provided by the church? If that's the beginning point, that's a game changer as far as trying to imagine youth ministry as helping people contribute to the church. Um, And a job description of someone working in youth ministry include being a bridge builder, meaning um, they should be spending part of their time figuring out how a young person can contribute to the mission. What's their gifts? What's their spark? How do they understand that in light of the purposes of God and work on it, practice it in that church? Um, How is it that we begin to talk about young people as, this is in one of the chapters in the book, as more than just a problem to solve? So that fear that arises in us, it makes us um, identify young people as a problem that we have to figure out, right? Or young adults, or there's a problem rather than understanding um, them as the potential of what they have to contribute to the mission of God in the world. That's great. Stephen, anything else you wanted to, you wanted to hit on? This has been, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. No, I, I, I think that's it. Uh, Dr. Calgary Kitchen, we really uh, appreciate you uh, spending time with us this evening. I'm glad yeah. to be here. Thanks for hanging out with me and listening to me talk about my book. Yeah, absolutely. We'll want to reemphasize for our listeners and we'll kind of wrap and share and stay on and we can discuss a little bit, but uh, guys, everyone check out reciprocal church really enjoyed the context, hopefully, or content, hopefully you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, Sharon, anywhere else you'd point folks in just in terms of accessing your content, even beyond the book um, or, or others, you'd point them to any resources? Um, yeah, sure. I am in the process of building a website, reciprocalchurch.com, but you have to give that a little time to get um, off the road. But I'd really All be right. paying attention um, to some voices that are emerging. Certainly, you should pay attention to what's coming out of Fuller Seminary. Um, and there's a, pro- a joy project that you're going to see some work on soon. Um, and so there's a lot of voices out there that need to be listened to, even when they fit into one of the four of my categories. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be sure to link folks up to, to your work for everyone tuning in. Thank you so much for listening and, uh, we'll, we'll see you on the next one.